Well, let's turn uh, to God's Word and to John chapter 18. We're going to look at this passage now this morning. I've entitled our sermon, The King of Truth in a World of Spin. There's an ad that I've heard several times now on the radio. It runs like this. Before you arrive at your opinion, do you know where your information is coming from? Not everything on your feed can be trusted. The information can distort your understanding of the world, or misinformation can distort your understanding of the world. You need to move past the rage, deception and fear and find the truth about the story. Integrity matters. Trust matters. Journalism matters. RTE News. The truth matters. We live in an era of claims, counterclaims, and even counter-counterclaims. An era of scepticism about even journalism itself, and sometimes with good cause. But we live in an era where truth particularly is assumed to be capable of being reduced to a soundbite, to being spun, to being reduced to a black and white, to a yes or no. I grew up in the era of Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, with its articles written by qualified experts in their field and counterchecked by other qualified experts. Now we live in the era of Wikipedia, the online encyclopedia where an article can be edited by just about anyone, from the world expert in their field to Barry from Ballina, who has a notion that what he saw in the cinema the other night is actually the true story. The truth has become truth by consensus. It's not what actually happened that is the truth, but it's what the majority of people say happened is considered true. So if the majority of people change the Wikipedia entry to say one thing, well, as Wikipedia is set up, it's set up to, well, that's the way it is. That's truth. It's been democratised. We see politicians spouting things with confidence as if they can somehow create reality by speaking. That they can change the truth. We see others play with words, manipulating meaning so they can justify themselves. And you can sense a weariness, even a jaded cynicism creeping across the globe. What is truth? What is truth? Who am I to believe? How are we to live in a world of half-truths, misused truths, lies, spin? How are we to live? Well, the answer to these questions isn't a dry philosophical answer. What is truth? It's a person and it's a relationship. And that's what we want to think about this morning. How can we know the truth and have our lives grounded in the truth while we live in a world where, quite frankly, sometimes we don't know what to believe. It may be true, it may be not. Well, it's to know the one who said, I am the truth. And to know the one who said, I came to testify to the truth. And as we know the king of truth and what his kingdom is, and as we 
go about the work of his kingdom in our daily lives, that will ground us and stabilize us. There's four things I want us to see this morning as we look at this passage. First of all, there's the beauty of the king. The beauty of the king. You see, in this section, John is keen to show us Jesus as king. This whole section before Pilate is covered in depth only by John. I wonder if he was there as an eyewitness. Or maybe he knew someone who was. For he records things that were said right in that inner space. And maybe, or maybe Jesus told John afterwards. But whatever it is, it has impressed itself in John's memory. So when he comes to write his account, it's this that he tells us. He holds out to us. Not the details of the trial before Caiaphas. But the kingliness of Christ. And what Christ says about his kingdom, it does seem a little bit strange. John, in a sense, interrupts the speed of the drama to bring us this conversation between Pilate and Jesus. He doesn't recount for us the trial before Caiaphas. He doesn't recount for us the detailed debate in the Sanhedrin before they sentenced him to death. But he records this. And as we look at it, we see him wanting to underline something. Maybe as we read through it, you noticed the references to king and kingdom. But turn to your Bibles again and, and have a look. Verse 33. Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 36. My kingdom, Jesus, it is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. Verse 37. You are a king, then said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Verse 2 on into chapter 19. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They clothed him in a purple robe. They said, hail, king of the Jews. Verse 5, another reference to crown and robe. Verse 12, anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Verse 14, here is your king. Verse 15, shall I crucify your king? Verse 15, we have no king but Caesar. Verse 19, Pilate has a notice. What does it read? Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. The religious leaders complain. What do they complain saying? Do not write the king of the Jews but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Seventeen times in those verses, John mentions concepts of king and kingdom and crown and robe. It's the, the ancient equivalent of putting it in block capitals and underlining it and highlighting it in luminous yellow. This is what he's talking about. This is what he wants us to see. And earlier... He had recorded Jesus coming into Jerusalem and I had fulfilled the prophecy. Daughter Zion, see your king is coming, seated on a, donkey, on a donkey's colt. Here's the king. John wants us to see him as a king. He wants us to see him as a king who will lay down his life to rescue his people. That's going to be the bit we see next time, looking at chapter 19. But in this section, he wants us to see Jesus as the king of truth. And there's something majestic. And there's something beautiful about the contrast in chapter 18. Jesus stands there proclaiming to be a king. Proclaiming to be about truth. And what's the world around him like? Well, on the one hand, you've got the backdrop of the religious leaders 
conniving and scheming and plotting and ducking and diving and twisting their words and trying above all else to, to somehow stay legal in doing something desperately wicked. And Jesus stands in contrast, majestic and truthful. And it's set against Pilate, his vacillating, his self-serving politics, his not willing to take a stand for the truth, his jaded cynicism, his weak, ineffective authority. And there in front of him stands the king, the true king, the king of truth. The ancient psalmist had said in Psalm 45 about Jesus. We saw how in the book of Hebrews, the writer there says, this is about Jesus. You the psalmist said, are the most excellent of men and your lips have been anointed with grace since God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your side, you mighty one. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride forth victoriously in the course of truth, humility and justice. And that's what we have here. Here is the king riding forth in the cause of truth humility and justice. He is going to take our punishment. He is going to deal with the justice that our sins deserved so that we could be forgiven. Here is not a self-serving king. Here is not a self-serving politician like Pilate. Here is not a, a deceitful, trying to get themselves off the hook sort of a person like the religious leaders. Here is Jesus. And there's something beautiful about our king in a world of spin and a world of lies and crookedness here's the way to live and stand it's to know the king and it's to copy the king and it's to live for the king and so it's relevant for us as christians living in our world today this is how we live we live as subjects of this king and in a world where all sorts of pressures and currents and, and that uh, would push us to be quiet about what we believe or leave us not knowing what we're to believe in the world around us, we're to listen to the king and we're to watch the king and we're to hear what he says and his truth will give us confidence. The beauty of the king. The, the second thing I want to say is the nature of the kingdom. The nature of the kingdom. You know, it's kind of strange. Jesus is on trial for his life, but he stops to give Pilate a little lesson on what his kingdom is like, and John records it so that we can learn. So that's what we're going to do. It might seem odd that as we're in the lead up to the crucifixion that we're going to think about the nature of Christ's kingdom, but that's what John would have us do. The Jewish religious leaders are bringing Pilate to Jesus. It's early in the morning. You know, there is considerable discussion about the timing of the crucifixion events on the day. It's not helped by the lack of watches and a tendency to be quite a bit vaguer about time than, than we would like in century 21. But this, we're told, is early morning. It's probably just after sunrise. Long enough after sunrise to allow the Jewish religious leaders to have a clear conscience about not having a trial at night. They weren't allowed. It was illegal to have a trial at night. 
and although they've had the majority of their trial at night. The cock crowing happened at three o'clock. It was the hour that was known as the cock crow. Um, the final sentencing, and that was when Peter had finally given his, his last denial of knowing Christ. So that's about three in the morning. It would seem as if the sentencing aspect of the trial is done just at sunrise, so they can be above board in their hypocrisy. And the leaders bring Jesus to Pilate. And then we read in verse 28, to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they didn't enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Well, we'll come back to the hypocrisy later. You know, think about it for a moment. They're plotting to have Jesus killed unjustly and they're scrippling over becoming ceremonially unclean. You know, if they went into a Gentile's house, they would be unclean and that would disqualify them from the Passover. If it was an unroofed structure, it didn't count. If it was the courtyard of a Gentile's house that was towards the front and you didn't have to go under a roof, you weren't in the house. And so they could stand in the courtyard and talk with this Gentile and argue for murder and still be ceremonially clean. And so they've come to Pilate. And they had to come to Pilate. As I said, uh, as we looked at the reading, the Romans held the, the final say in capital cases. They wouldn't allow the local authorities to execute freely. They had to come to Pilate. They had to come to the Roman governor. And so although the Jews have found Jesus guilty, they have to come cap in hand. And it wouldn't do to say that they had found Jesus guilty of blasphemy. Pilate wouldn't care in the slightest. So they had to come up with another set of charges. And that may explain a little bit of the toing and froing going on with Pilate. What charges are you bringing? Uh, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. It's not really an answer, is it? They're basically implying that Jesus is a career criminal. The Greek is one who is continually doing wrong. And then Pilate says, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. And then they have to let the cat out of the bag. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. That's what they want. And then Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? It's not recorded that they've said that Jesus is the king of the Jews, but clearly at some point they have. Maybe it was before um, Pilate had sent upwards of 600 soldiers with them to arrest Jesus. He had to have some idea why they were being sent. And now you can almost hear the astonishment as he looks at this inoffensive Galilean. Are you the king of the Jews? And the, the you is emphatic. In, in John's Greek language. Are you the king of the Jews? Did I send 600 men to get you safely arrested? They're getting worked up about you. Instead of directly answering, Jesus asked the question in verse 34. Is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about me? Now, is Jesus pulling the same sort of trick that the religious leaders have just asked by being vague? And not answering the question. Well, no, he's seeking clarification. You see, if Pilate is working off his own idea of what a king is, that's a political king and that's a threat to Rome. 
If he's working off the Jewish idea of king, that's a messianic king. That's a spiritual thing. And that's not a threat to Rome. So it depends very much what idea Pilate has in mind. One, the answer is yes. One, the answer is no. And so he asks this question. Are you the king of the Jews? And then Jesus says, who, who told you this? And Pilate basically says, well, do I look like a Jew? Do I look like I'm interested in the Jewish Messiah? And then Jesus defines the nature of his kingdom and his kingship. And three brief things to note here. First of all, it's spiritual. Christ's kingdom is spiritual. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place, or literally, but now my kingdom is not from this world. His kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. It's not of this world. It's not about borders and territory and cities and power and political clout. That's not what Jesus is about. And as evidence, he says, if it were, my servants would be fighting to prevent my arrest. Well, true, Peter had pulled out the sword, but what had happened? None of the others had done it, and Jesus had told him to put it away. What he's saying to Pilate is, at one level, Rome has nothing to fear from me. I'm not rebelling against political power. My kingdom is utterly different. My kingship comes from a different place. It's not from the political realm. It's a kingdom not of territory, but of hearts and lives. You know, we need to hold that in mind for century 21. Christ's kingship is first to be found in our hearts and in the lives of people, not in our statute books. Yes, governments have a duty to rule according to God's word, but we're not trying to set up heaven on earth by physical or political force. The day will come when Jesus' kingdom will be of this world. I think that's what the little word now is getting at in verse 36. But now it is not of this world. The implication being there will be a time when it will be. And the physicality of lands and borders and cities, that day will come when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is king over all the earth and he is the one who will do it. It will happen when he returns. And this keeps us from getting our target wrong as we seek to live for Christ here. The kingdom that we are to be most interested in and most focused on advancing isn't a political kingdom. And politics and politicians aren't the primary means of changing the world for Christ. Some Christians seem to put all their eggs in those baskets. Politics and politicians. We need to get the right man as president. We need to get the right man into parliament. And if we get them in, then, then wickedness will be stemmed and everything will be okay. Jesus reminds us here that his kingdom is not of this world. We are to see his rule being spread in the hearts and lives of people. That's our primary focus. It's spiritual. That's the battlefield that we're involved in. But two other things to note here. It's unseen. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's unconvinced by what he sees. How unconvincing Jesus must have looked. 
his followers had abandoned him. Never mind his own unconvincing appearance. There was no form or no majesty about him, Isaiah would say. But his followers had done a runner. And yet he is the king. He is the great I am. He is the one who controls the wind and the waves. He is the one who has raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. He is the giver of life and the ruler of creation. Pilate can't see it. There's an unseen aspect to the kingdom of Christ. So don't judge things by what you can see. Don't be discouraged by what you can see in the world. You belong, if you're a Christian, you belong to a kingdom that is unseen. And much of the realities of it are unseen. Yes, as people's lives are changed, it starts to be seen in their daily life. But don't judge the scope of the kingdom by what you can see. Don't judge the success of the kingdom by what you can see. Don't get discouraged by smallness. Don't even judge by the quality of the followers of Jesus Christ. Because look, they've all done a runner. And one of them's just denied him three times. The king is still the king. The king is still the king. And then there's sovereignty. Third thing to note about the nature of the kingdom. It's it's a sovereign kingdom. And it's sovereign over all the plotting and scheming of men. There's a, a little glimpse of this in verse 31. John tells us. The Jewish leader said, we have no right to execute anyone. And then John says, this took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. John wants us to remember that Jesus had said that he would be handed over to the Gentiles. Mark 9, 33 and 34. And he had said in John 3 and in John 8 and in John 12 that he would be lifted up. You see, the Jews could have put him to death illegally. They could have had a mob stone him to death and just say it was the heat of the moment, like what happened with Stephen or with another disciple, James, who was thrown off a, a cliff or off the, the, the corner of the temple and down a cliff. They could have done that. But no, they wanted it to be above board. And in being above board, they were fulfilling what Jesus had said about the kind of death he would die. He would be handed over to the Gentiles. They would put him to death and he would be lifted up. Lifted up on the cross, like Jesus had said. And John wants us to get that the king is sovereign. Even as he's on trial, he's in control. And that reminds us that even when things seem most against Christ's kingdom, he's still on the throne, working it all together. Nothing is outside his control. Not godless governments, not hostile media, not anything in our world is outside his control. What confidence that should give us. Here's the nature of our king's kingdom. He's a beautiful king. He came to rescue his people. And this is what his kingdom is like at this stage. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. But he is indisputably king over everything that goes on in this world. Then thirdly and fourthly, I want to see two things more briefly. Thirdly, the method of Christ's kingdom. Christ's kingdom is not a political one. It's not a territorial one. But 
It's not going to be built up by the usual means of building kingdoms, policies and treaties and commerce or swords and soldiers. It's built by a king who lays down his life for his people. That's what we'll see, God willing, next week in chapter 19. But what he says here and what Jesus draws Pilate's attention to, what John draws our attention to, is another way this kingdom is built. Yes, the king is going to lay down his life for his people. But how will this king, how will this kingdom spread? Jesus answered Pilate, you say that I am a king. You rightly say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Here's the method of the kingdom. How does the kingdom advance? It's built by the telling and speaking of the truth. The truth about God, the truth about this world, the truth about sin, the truth about life, the truth about death, the truth about Jesus, the truth about salvation. Christ's kingdom will not be advanced by Christians getting key positions in politics or the media. Nothing wrong with Christians being in those positions. We see Daniel highly involved in the Babylonian court. But that's not Christ's main way of changing society. It's through him and his truth. He is the truth and he bears testimony to the truth. And citizenship in his kingdom comes via hearing the truth and believing the truth and being changed by the truth. In John 3, 21, Jesus says, whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the truth. No one comes to the Father except by me. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You see it right in the middle there, I am the truth. In John 8, 31 and 32, he says, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples. Then you will know the truth. And hear this. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Is that not what our world desperately needs? Freedom. Freedom from fear. Freedom from hopelessness. Freedom from despair. Freedom from the tangled web of sin and guilt and a judgment that awaits. Freedom. How does it come about? The truth in Jesus' teaching is what sets us free. And that's our method. We are to proclaim his truth. A great lie entered the world in Genesis 3. You can be like God. We've been living in a kingdom of darkness ever since, believing ourselves to be little kings and little queens. But now light has dawned. The truth has come into the world. That we are more wicked than we ever realized. But we could be more loved than we ever dreamt. That we who play at being gods could actually be adopted as the sons and daughters of God. That's the truth. And that's what we as Christians are to live and to proclaim. This is how the kingdom works. And this is our job. To be salt and light in this world by living out the truth that we live under the kingship of Jesus, that we follow a good and kind and glorious and beautiful king, that this is the truth and that it's wonderful to live by it. We are to be salt and light. And we are to, to say it not just by our lives, but by our words. We are to speak the truth 
that hope is found in Jesus, that life is found in Jesus, that forgiveness is found in Jesus. And as we do this, society will be changed around us. Not from the top down, but from the bottom up. That's how we're to live. That's the method of Christ's kingdom. It might seem weak and ineffective, but so did Jesus before Pilate. And yet here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're not members of the Roman Empire, but we're citizens of Christ's kingdom. One has come and gone, and the other has stayed and grown. The method of Christ's kingdom, and then finally the reaction to Christ's kingdom. What sort of reaction can we expect as we live like this? Well, Jesus would say, uh, I'd said earlier, that his sheep would hear his voice and they would follow him. That there are those who hear the truth and listen to the truth. And that's what he says here to Pilate. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And there will be those who will hear it. His sheep will hear his voice. But there are two other reactions, the two that are set out in this chapter for us, that we should also expect, as well as people hearing and listening, there should be two other reactions. You know, Pilate thought he had Jesus on trial, but it's Jesus who is Pilate on trial. His statement is a bold challenge. Whose side are you on, Pilate? That's what he's effectively asking. Are you on the side of truth or not? But it's not only Pilate who's on trial. The Jewish religious leaders are on trial. And we see that rejection comes about for at least two reasons. The Jewish religious leaders reject the king because he threatens religious pride. Rejection because it threatens religious pride. The religious leaders, with stunning hypocrisy, bluster their way through Pilate's questions. They scruple over coming to a Gentile's house, all the while plotting to kill a man. They want to stay holy for the Passover so they can eat the Passover lamb, all the while they're in the very act of arranging the killing of the true Passover lamb. It's tragic as well as hypocritical. And why? It's because they've invested themselves so heavily in their scheme of self-justification before God that they don't need a saviour. I'm good enough, thank you very much. Jesus was an insult to their religiosity. Their religious pride couldn't handle being told that they weren't good enough. And there's many like that today. They feel they don't need Jesus because they feel they're okay before God. They're happy to point out the, the failures of others, scrupling at times to keep themselves a decent person, bending and playing with the truth so they can justify themselves, and yet they trample the king underfoot. You know, you can't be too bad for Jesus, but you can think yourself too good. These religious leaders thought themselves too good, and their pride is going to rule them out of Christ's kingdom forever. And then there's Pilate, rejecting the king because he threatens secular pride. There's another reason for rejecting Jesus, because it threatens secular pride. Pilate doesn't understand how momentous this moment is. Jesus challenges him to listen to the truth. And a jaded politician comes up with a smart-alecky answer. What is truth? 
It's not a philosopher's question. It's the scorning dismissal of a man who won't humble himself, who won't acknowledge that here is the very answer he needs. Pilate sits in judgment on truth, like many today. They sit above the truth. They want God to prove himself to them. They want to assess the truth and not listen to the truth. They will accept it only if it pleases their criteria and their standards. And yes, at a level we have to assess, is this true? But then having seen that this is true, we are to put ourselves under it and hear the truth. And that, that's a humbling thing to have to do because the Bible says some very hard things to us. And pride gets in the way. And sometimes people manufacture uncertainty. Well, what is truth? They find something to justify their lack of belief because the challenge Jesus brings is costly. It will, it will cost Pilate to let Jesus go. And the fear of the cost prevented him from coming to the truth. Oh, dear friends, don't let pride, whether it's religious pride or secular pride, keep you from Jesus. We need a king who will go to the cross for us. And the only way that can happen is if we swallow our pride and let the truth challenge us and shape us. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, Jesus said. Let me ask you, are you listening to him? Will you let him speak truth into your life? And will you follow the king who speaks truth into your life? For those of us who are seeking to follow the king and to believe his truth, how do we live in this world of instability? Who is the, the, the stable person in this account? It's the king. It's Jesus. And as we follow the King and trust in His truth and seek to bear witness to the truth so that through the truth we'll find the world being changed, as we do that, we will have a peace in this world and a confidence and a stability. We'll not get discouraged whenever people seem to ignore Jesus. We see, well, that's what happens. We'll not get discouraged whenever political figures do their own thing and pay no heed. It's always been that way. But we will have confidence that this is the way Jesus Christ is building his kingdom and changing this world. And his kingdom will triumph. So fix your eyes on the king and live in his truth and live it out in your life. We have the truth and the truth has set us free. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he didn't simply come to lay down his life as a, as a sign of how much he loved us. Thank you that it was a, a token of how much he loved us. But more than that, he came to set us free from Satan, sin and death. But not simply did he come to set us free for an eternal destination, but that he is building a kingdom and that he is ruling and reigning in this world, not not the way that governments and kings and dictators rule, but ruling 
his kingdom, extending his kingdom, building his kingdom. Thank you that in your mercy you have brought us into his kingdom and give us a confidence that our king is in control and that his way of changing the world is potent, is effective and help us, Lord, to live his truth, to take it in and to live it out and to walk with confidence and peace of mind and heart in a world that seems all over the place when it comes to truth. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.